0: Hello Charter Folk, this is Jed. I am delighted to be with you for the third Charter Folk chat. And today we are very fortunate to have with us the CEO of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, Nina Reese. Let's bring Nina right on, right, right away. Hi Nina. Hi Jed, thanks for having me. Hey, it's terrific to have you here. I'll start with an introduction. Uh, I, I am, Someone who says this all the time that I am a very big fan of Nina Reese. And um, I have nothing but affection and respect for uh, everything that you have done for our movement. I was on the board of the National Alliance for seven years. Uh, I was also on the subcommittee that headed up a search and made a recommendation to the board that we hire you. Um, And Nina came into the organization at a key moment of vulnerability. There was a question about whether or not the National Alliance should even exist as an organization. And I will let charter folk know that within just a few months, Nina brought a gravitas, a smarts, a a commitment, a quiet resolve that answered that question in a matter of just a few months. And then in the years after that, it's assembled a team and built strength, which has resulted in a number of very important wins for charter schools at a federal level. And I think also in the last, four years, three and a half years, Nina has done an admirable job of, the, of managing this balance of having a relationship with this administration, while at the same time letting the administration know on many occasions that what it was standing for was counter to what many charter folk think acceptable. And it was a very, very difficult balance to strike, and I don't know anybody that it could have done it as well as Nina has, so for all sorts of reasons. Uh, I, again, nothing but respect and affection for Nina Reese, and total gratitude that you are here with us for our third Charter Folk Chat. Thank you, Nina.
1: Again, thanks for having me. And I'm honored to be on this show, Um, Jed. You started with Secretary Duncan, followed by Howard Fuller, two people who I respect and admire a great deal. So it's humbling to be the third in the lineup.
0: (laughs) Well, great. Delighted to have you here. And maybe I'll just do one last self introduction for myself. When I did Howard at the last Charter Folk Chat, we had a COVID moment here where we've got remote learning going all over teenagers and my wife works at home and suddenly this space that I was supposed to record in was no longer available. So I had to run downstairs to the the kitchen to record from there at the last moment. What I didn't recognize was that the fan in the living room was spinning and the angle from the laptop made it look as though the fan was spinning directly above my head. My <laughs> daughter, who is very keen on these things, she said, Dad, I finally figured it out. You are the propeller head of the National Charter School Movement. <laughs> so I, uh, I claimed it with pride. I'll be the propeller head of of, uh, of, uh, of the Charter School Movement, as long as I have opportunities to keep it engaging with incredible people like Howard Fuller and like yourself. Uh, Tell me, Nina. Um, I'll start with just this question, just general, right? Um, one that I did not like that much, frankly, when it was asked to me in California, because California is like the nation, so varied, so many different things that you could talk about. It's so hard to tell one story. But if you were to talk about what is the status of charter schools nationally right now, how would you, how would you begin to talk about that in, in real general terms?
1: Well, let's start with the good news. Uh, We have about 3.3 million students in public charter schools right now, we have a little over 7500 charter schools in uh, 44 states and in Washington DC and 45 states that have charter school laws and In certain communities, um, we've definitely been able to see the impact of creating high quality public schools in a way that we never thought was imaginable. Uh, I live here in DC, Jed, and I know you've done some work in DC, so let's take DC as an example. Um, This was a city, when I was working on Capitol Hill, that was kind of the laughing stock of any community that talked about ed reform, because of the high turnover in the superintendents in charge, the quality of its school board. Uh, And it was ultimately Congress that enacted the charter school law and opened the door for DCPS and another another authorizer to open charter schools. And DCPS was doing such a poor job that they were uh, removed from uh, being an authorizer at the time. And now Mm -hmm. you have a robust authorizer the DC public charter school board. Uh, You have a governance structure that has allowed for uh, about 50% of the students in DC attending charter schools and the quality, the overall quality of DCPS has also improved over time. So we talk a lot about Michelle Reed and her influence. Every single charter leader who has been in this town since the mid-90s knows for a fact that the platform on which Michelle stood on Uh, to advocate for the reforms that she advocated for would not have been available if it weren't for so many families exercising the option to attend another school. Uh, And those schools are now revitalizing communities. I was just um in this area by union station called market common which is now bustling with energy stores and restaurants and whatnot uh, and the reason why that community is the way it is today is because of a school called two rivers public charter schools uh, that was put in place a few years ago it's a diverse by design school uh, and now you have a dog park uh, you have uh, families who are now keeping their students in that community after they have they have, they have children. Usually they move out of the city. Now they're staying in the city to send their kids to a school like Two Rivers. So, um, so again, I'm a huge advocate. I think the numbers have grown, but we've also seen the impact of charter schools on communities. And DC is definitely one of the examples that we look to. The other thing I also say is after, you know, so many years of chartering, we now have a lot of students who are either going to college, who have graduated from college and are in the workforce. Uh, I know we don't like to talk about data and studies anymore, but if you look at one study that was done a couple years ago by Mathematica uh, that followed students who graduated from Chicago charter schools and those who graduated from Florida charter schools, these are very different markets, as you can imagine, and they found that their earning potential went up. Um, As a result of having attended a charter school. So we need to do more analysis of that. Ultimately, why the reason why most of us are doing this is because we want to make sure that the students attending our schools are on the pathway uh, to, uh, you know, prosperity, whether it's uh, moving out of poverty. Uh, leading a a fulfilling life uh, and ultimately coming back to the communities um, where they were living to give back and revitalize those communities. So I think on the two metrics of community impact and long term achievement, charters definitely have paved the way. And there's much more that we need to do to tell that story um, than we have in the past. With all of that said, though, of course, the politics surrounding our space are definitely front and center. So when you were asking me that question very quickly, it's Mm -hmm. got tougher. But the reason it has become tougher, as you know better than anyone else, is because we are having an impact. When chartering was first conceptualized, our opposition wasn't paying any attention to it. It was just a few innovative schools on the side. They started to notice when they noticed the achievement levels. They started to notice when they noticed so many families wanting to attend these charter schools. So the reason it's becoming tougher is because you're at that 20-yard line of that football game. You need to have better defense you need to be much more agile nimble and and i mean that's where you you have to put all your efforts to win the game at this point and it pains me that people kind of see this as a weakness when in fact the reason why the opposition is striking back is because um we've been able to take the ball all the way into the red zone
0: mm-hmm. yeah well um Lots of, tr- lots of patterns what, um, from my experience in other states that would reflect what you're talking about. Just a, an incredible amount of progress over 25, 30 years, and yet a level of blowback unlike any that we've seen before, and probably a moment of truth arising for our movement to see whether or not we can push through this and maintain a level of momentum toward an, a, 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 an impact that is beyond anything that we've achieved before. It makes the the work in front of us in the next five to ten years incredibly exciting, incredibly high stakes. But it's also one we have to take very seriously because if it didn't go well, it could mean really bad things for just millions of of kids and and families who are already in charter schools and potentially more who could be served down the road. So l- let me ask you this next question, which is really around some of the changes that have happened in twenty twenty. We've had the reaction to the death of George Floyd and the elevation of issues related to racial equity, social justice. And we've seen those questions now posed to different parts of our society, to the criminal justice system, to the way we do policing and to other areas too. But the question really hasn't come with the same vigor yet to our public education system. And what I wonder is, do you think that an evolution of the discussion about the need for racial justice and and greater um, uh, equity is ultimately going to come to to our discussion of public education? And do you see that as a positive thing or a negative thing for our movement? I, of course, see it as a positive thing, but I wanted to hear what your your thoughts are on that. Uh,
1: No, absolutely. It's a positive thing but i am a little bit dismayed at the fact that it hasn't been discussed more um and um so it's two things going on i I think people don't think about education and the correlation between education and outcomes as much as they need to at times like this Right now you have covid you have the racial tensions you have politics you also have in a lot of these communities a fiscal cliff that's about to hit um our school districts and 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 systems so people are a little bit distracted but if you think really hard about what it will take to really heal these racial wounds a high quality education is at the center of it making sure that um, black and brown students have access to high-quality schools, schools that are um, putting them on a path to graduate and go to college rather than create a path that leads them to prison and to, um, uh, you know, unfortunately um, some of the uh, paths that our low-income communities um, have paved for their students and so I, I hope that this is something that will get addressed Uh, as as you've noticed the presidential candidates are not even really talking about education or when they're talking about it it's a bunch of sound bites so um, to me that's probably the most alarming thing i came to this town in the 90s when education reform was becoming more and more popular when bill clinton was running for office uh, as the education president a lot of these governors wanted to be education governors And now when you look around the country, the board education governor doesn't come up as much as it should. Um, And it's unfortunate. I hope it's just the cyclical thing that will pass uh, because if we really want to uh, kind of, you know, lean into this current moment and make the case for what it will take to revitalize the communities where these types of atrocities are taking place, a high quality education is at the heart of the solution and it needs to be brought up much more in the context of every discussion that deals with eradicating poverty and eradicating racism in my opinion.
0: This is one of the themes at Charter Folk for sure. It's certainly one of the themes of my work at the California Charter School Association over that entire 10 year period, was trying to educate our as many people as we could, but even our own base about how our public education system has been designed in a way that has inequity cooked into its very DNA. And I can't tell you how many times, even within CCSA, this incredible team that we had there, people were just on fire around issues around charter schools, but sometimes issues of social justice would arise and people would say, let's leave our base work on education to work on those other things because we don't have as much progress to be made where we are. But then when we would stop and say, wait a second, wait, wait, let's look at the design of our public education system. Let's look at how we have attendance boundaries redlining educational opportunity. Let's look at how selective admissions criteria take away options for low-income African-American Latino kids. Let's look at how money is sucked away from the highest needs schools to subsidize education in other parts of town. Let's look at how the schools that are need the greatest accountability have none whatsoever. And when you start to then make these things apparent to people, now they'll stay within our own right. issues and say, oh, I know. Mm -hmm. I just think our our world has just not done a great job within our own base of of making sure that we surface the problems that are there in the public education system and reinforce the notion that the reason that we're here is because they're there and darn it, we're going to be the thing that actually does something about this in the end.
1: No, I agree with you, Jed. and I, I you know, so you have a lot of experience in California. I came to this movement honestly, from a, a slightly different angle. Again, when I worked on the hill and in different think tanks at the time, there was a huge push by then Representative um, Flake and some Republicans uh, to revitalize communities and education. And, Schools of choice were part of that equation. So, like you, I really feel like this needs to become part of that puzzle in order for it to make sense, in order for it to thrive. And, um, you know, for better or for worse, we've been connected to the standards and accountability and testing and all, you know, the the, the education reform movement um, and the coalition that brought us to this place um will not take us to the next level because right now the focus is on winning hearts and minds and making sure people understand that at the end of the day this is not just about you know a high test score on Mm -hmm. a math meeting test which again we should be focused on that it's also about life outcomes it's also about what happens to the child when they leave the school socio-emotional needs of the child uh the school climate there are just so many other things that for better or for worse, we're now talking more about, but I and I think in many instances, charters are actually leading the discussion. But unfortunately, those who are watching the discussion are still used to hearing about chartering in the context of a highly regimented space where it's all about standards and accountability and you know these uh, test-based systems that ultimately graduate students and send them to certain colleges. And again. Those of us who know the movement know that is far more than that. And I think it's really incumbent on us to really shine a light on these schools. You you uh, you came from high tech high, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, uh, there are just so many examples of schools like that out there that are simply not getting the attention they deserve. And we should definitely lean in again and highlight the things that these schools have done. And as I mentioned earlier, attendance boundaries are at the heart of the problem. And the fact that students are relegated to attending a school based on their zip code is at the heart of the problem and the fact that depending on the district that you're in, the amount of money that you're allocated is bear, is is different is the ultimate puzzle that needs to be that needs to be solved.
0: I want to keep going down this path because really frankly the reason why I made charter folk is because I'm convinced that we're not advocating for the right things and we're not advocating for them in the right way. And it's set up to keep going, but I think we're skipping another topic which just has to be talked about first which is the COVID challenge and how it's obviously a great tragedy and a setback for the entire society. It's such a challenge for public education generally. But we are also now seeing that the, the polling that's coming out most recent is that the public is seeing how many within our traditional public school system are simply not making the pivots to do the things that parents think that are reasonable to expect of schools at this moment. And we're seeing schools uh, like charter schools turn to in, in unprecedented numbers. And so it could very well be that the COVID situation is, again, changing the dialogue as it relates to charter schools. But this is, again, fraught because there's greater financial pressure on all schools. And when there's financial pressure, there tends to be more scapegoating of charter schools. Can you just talk about how you think the COVID challenge is affecting charter school standing in the national landscape?
1: Okay, uh, and I should have really brought this up earlier since you know it's interesting how we've been in this moment for so long that we now don't mention it anymore, but it's true that um, th- what's happened has put some real pressure on our education system and made parents, quite frankly, appreciate the role of educators and teachers more than ever before. Uh, When COVID first hit, uh, as you well know, the charter school community showed up in full force. Uh, There are a number of studies now. We just did one with public impact over the summer that looked at smaller networks and individual schools. But there are other studies Mm -hmm. by Credo um, and uh, Fordham that looked at larger networks. Uh, And by and large, not only did our schools, you know, were ready to kind of do whatever it took to offer remote learning arrangements, whether it was through the internet or otherwise, homework packets, meal packets and whatnot. A good number of them also went a step further to see how they could also help the community. Uh, And as you well know, a lot of these networks have now also put all of their course content online uh, for any school to be able to tap into. Uh, So Again, I'm extremely proud of the work that the charter school community has done. We try not to compare and contrast too much, but when you look at the response by school districts who for a very long time were just kind of waiting to get guidance from the US Department of Education around how to serve the needs of special needs students instead of rolling up their sleeves and doing whatever it took to get the job done. Our movement came up in full force the innovative nature of our of our enterprise allowed us to shift gears faster. It allowed us to move money faster, and it also allowed us, as a result, to serve our students and also be an attractive place for um, new students to uh, to consider sending you know to come into a charter school. And so, um, I'm just confident that the way we showed up is going to make a difference in the long run. And again, the numbers, if you look at the you know eclipse every day, you notice the uptick in enrollment in charter schools. Some of them are virtual charter schools, but there's also been an uptick in the brick and mortars. And then the other thing that we've noticed recently is just a number of students who are not showing up uh, in their assigned district schools. And so where they're mm-hmm. going is is also an interesting question. And I'm assuming in those places where charters are available, charters are definitely an option since we're schools of choice and, um, and you know, and and we we accept all students. Um, With all that said though, the thing that's really tragic about this, as you well know, is that the gap in achievement between the rich and poor students and between students of color and white students was pretty pronounced before COVID hit. Since COVID, that gap has gotten larger. There was a recent uh, study out of Credo, uh, which again, it assumed that the students who weren't attending school were not getting any kind of education. So the projections that they have about students losing as much as a year of learning may have been a little bit exaggerated but it definitely points in that direction because a lot of students the students who need help the most were not getting the help or they were stuck in front of a computer without an adult guiding them through uh, the instruction the summer months who knows what we were doing with these students in the summer months and what's really bothering me and what's really sad about all this is There are ways to have made this work. And I was talking to um, the the leader of the After School Alliance a few weeks ago, and she was just telling me one of the things that they could do very easily, we keep talking about pods and how some wealthy communities are coming together to make sure their kids are not falling behind. The same resources that are available to affluent communities in many instances are available in low-income communities in the form of after-school programs, but you have to fund them. You have to make sure they have the resources. And in some states, she was telling me that if you don't make sure that after school programs can function during the school, school day, the schools cannot take advantage of these options. So by just making few changes, you'd be able to also serve the needs of these students by hiring volunteers or people who are working at the local YMCA and the Boys and Girls Club to monitor the student's progress as they are sitting in front of a Chromebook or attending a library or whatnot. So I just think, you know, um, it's unfortunate that we are where we are, but I hope that out of this, uh, you know, we we are at a moment where people are thinking more innovative They're also really, quite frankly, valuing the importance of infrastructure as including not just the brick and mortar of a school, but also infrastructure, including a Chromebook and laptop, Internet connectivity. I think those are the things that uh, COVID has definitely brought to the forefront. And now for the first time, certainly at the federal level, you have bipartisan support uh, for things like Internet connectivity. And access to software, hardware, and whatnot. So, those are all positive developments. But as you well know, Jed, our system of schooling is so resistant to change that I just want to see it. You know, I, I have to hope that some governor certainly will lean into this and make some fundamental changes to their schools that leverage what charters have done transfer that knowledge to the larger system. You know, you see Miami-Dade has done a tremendous job because they already had a one-to-one device available to students. But so anyways, what I'm trying to say is I hope some governors will take advantage of this to make some fundamental changes. Uh, but I also, it remains to be seen how how much COVID will have a permanent impact in the delivery of our schooling and how much our community is mm-hmm. showing up to force that discussion.
0: I think that what I see coming out of the COVID situation is one very comparable to what I've seen emerge over the last, say, five to 10 years in charter schools more generally. It's thus far a lack of imagination about what to propose that would help us drive a new narrative. I personally believe that we've become convinced that if we have the right communications efforts, if we have social media, if we have billboards, we have the right videos, that somehow or another, those things are going to change the narrative around charter schools. I don't think that that's ever going to happen. I don't think that that's how the narrative against us has been driven. The narrative against us has been driven by concrete policy proposals at the state level, at the local level. And then once people have momentum and there's discussion of these proposals in the public sphere, then communications efforts start to get feathered into things. As far as what we should do in the COVID era, Talk is cheap. What are specifically the proposals that the charter school community wants to bring forward? Ones where we have credibility, ones where we are able to do things that the traditional public school system isn't able to do. And we then express our care for all children, for all students, by saying, not only for the kids that we serve, do we want to make sure that we continue to have the flexibility to do these things, but we want to push the whole system so that they can too. That's the critical challenge, in my opinion. That's in front of us, you know, in the COVID era. It's also the challenge I think that's in front of charter schools more generally. How do we do a a narrative? A, uh, how do we drive a narrative with a different policy agenda? I've been suggesting here at Charter Folk that we should gravitate around one that talks about, unfortunately, our public school system turning out to be not that public. The redlining problems, the financial problems that we talked about, the lack of accountability other flaws in the design of the um, public education system. And of course, we should keep modeling that we don't have those inequities in our schools, but we also bring proposals back to push the traditional system to purge itself of redlining and all these other pieces. And when we did that, we would now have a new narrative out in the landscape that we could build communications around and those kinds of things. Uh, I wonder what your reaction is to that, am I just, completely off base here? Or do you think um, there may be a way to drive a new narrative for charter schools embedded in a different um, uh, policy agenda than maybe we've uh, sought in the last five to eight years?
1: Um, Jed, I agree with you that we need a new narrative, but... If we come up with a new narrative and we don't have the distribution channels, um, the narrative is not going to gain traction. And I would argue that one of the key flaws in our equation is simply not having that infrastructure right now uh, for two reasons. We're small. And second, quite frankly, a lot of our school leaders uh, are not interested in advocacy. They're used to someone else doing that work. And so in order for whatever narrative that we want to discuss to to to, to generate momentum and for it to have authenticity, you actually do need everyone to say the same thing at the same time. Um, And so I agree with you that we need a new narrative. Um, Where I disagree a little bit with you is the notion of taking on school districts as the enemy. Um, You you used to work in a school district um, and it was a well-functioning school district until the superintendent you worked for left, right? Um, You know, there are in my opinion extremely hard working school superintendents around the country who quite frankly suffer from a lot of uh the things that we've identified as being barriers to success and their hands are tied because they're operating in a bureaucratic system uh, that doesn't allow them to make course corrections quickly if you are a savvy superintendent like duncan cruzman was outside of houston you usually if if you stay there long enough, right? So again, uh, Senator Bennett used to be the superintendent of schools in Denver, another example. Right. If, you, right? if you are in these roles and you stay there long enough and you have school boards that are defending you and supporting you, mayors who are supporting you, a business community that's by your side, then good things can happen. And the charter sector can work in tandem with the traditional system uh, to make great things happen. Where the problem gets complicated is in those places where you have high turnover for the superintendent and highly political school boards and individuals on the school boards who are simply not edu- necessarily ad- interested in education or using the school board seat as a stepping stone to go and do something else. And so this highly political system that we have in this country, which is very unique to the United States... Um, works in those communities where the voters are paying attention to these school board races. It doesn't work in those places where the voters are not engaged. So if I had one wish for our sector, it's really to make sure our families, our teachers, those students who are old enough register to vote and that they are flexing their voice as you know, as, as as voters at every level of government, because ultimately, regardless of what we do in the chartering space, we kind of live in a medium. We're not kind of isolated entities that are just educating kids. Ultimately, there are a whole host of other things that impact our community's well-being and so I think it's just really important for us to take that task more seriously for our school leaders to understand the role they play in a community to form alliances with the local NAACP chapter the local rotary chapter and do all the other things that our traditional system has done well over time to be seen as a permanent part of a community Um, so I'm afraid that may not necessarily be in place in every community where charter schools reside and so this is partially why most people don't know what a charter school is because even the people sending their kids to a charter school often don't know what a charter is because we don't talk a lot about it the word charter doesn't appear in the names of the school even Um, so anyway so the long and short of it is yes we need a new narrative but I also think you need to have a mobilized base of people who understand what Charter school is why it needs to be, and some of that comes by engaging them more in 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 the politics that surrounds
0: our education system.
1: I don't know if I answered yep. your question, but that's why well, I, I think am you,
0: on on. on. I, I think you certainly bring up um, the other theme. Uh, my if 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 I deconstruct the the plot that has been used against us the strategy that has been used against us it is really twofold to present what we are doing as an attempt to privatize public education and we are presented that's what we're advocating for and then how we're advocating for it is we're a billionaire plot and um that strategy is something that the California Teachers Association, the NEA, and many other adversaries across the country came to after years and years of analysis and millions and millions of dollars of consulting and all of that. And my own sense is that unless we are able to push back on both of those things by saying that we are not about privatizing, we're actually about making our public school system, which has unfortunately turned out to be not that public, much more public. And how we're doing it is we genuinely are a movement and we need these organizations that can amass uh, the, the great numbers of stakeholders that, that are now within the charter school movement to be working in a collected unified way toward a goal we all find aspirational. So this comes to my next question for you, which is not a new question. Mia, yes, you and I, please your in.
1: Question, I mean, so our opposition is smart and they um yeah i learned this in the edit edit 08 um, uh, discussions that the broad foundation at the time they had hired a whole group of people to help make education uh, a national issue when barack obama was running for president um so i was talking to one of the consultants for that effort recently and i brought up this very question that that, that you're asking or this uh, hypothesis that you're presenting and his response was this is true but look if it weren't these talking points they would have come up with something else so you should not necessarily focus too much on what they are saying but figure out what is it that you are for and forcefully push for that because you know unfortunately we live at a time where facts don't matter as much as they used to and so um just the fact that they decided the word billionaires doesn't pull well doesn't You know, mean anything. I mean, most of our schools don't have a big base of philanthropic support, as you well know. Uh, They make 70 cents of the dollar. In states like Ohio, that number drops to about 64 cents on in some communities. So um, there are a few schools uh, that have had the the philanthropic support of individuals who are now for the first time putting money into public charter schools. Schools, these individuals would not be investing in public education if it weren't for charter schools. So instead Mm of embracing them and saying this is the way for public education um, to thrive by attracting more dollars from the private sector, Instead, it's become this other story that's unfortunate, but one that, in my opinion, is highly inaccurate because, again, 65 percent of our schools are single sites. They're not benefiting from a single penny of anyone who has means. And most of our schools, as you know, they still have to raise money the same way that some public schools do. So anyway, I digress. But I I, want to be careful not to buy whatever it is that they're trying to sell or react necessarily to what they're saying because that narrative is gonna shift based on what they perceive to be popular and not necessarily what's
0: accurate. I totally agree with the colleague that you were interacting with that we must have a North Star and we must calibrate all of our efforts toward that. And that to some extent, our challenges in recent years is that we have been unable to identify what that North Star is that we are driving toward. My own sense is that we should make that North Star a public school system that is greatly more public. There is something about the, the notion of public education in our in our society that puts it as something special that needs to be supported. And I don't think it's okay for us to say that uh, charter schools are public schools because that's that's chosen, that, that that's working within their frame where they're asserting that we're not. We should basically be saying, no, the judicial system is not public. We want something that's way more public and we are already it and we're pushing the rest of the system through. And and we come up with specific proposals, whatever they are. Get rid of these attendance boundaries. Get rid of these selective admissions criteria. Make school districts approve their budgets down to the school level, like CMOs already have to do, so we can see where the money goes and whether or not money is getting to the kids for whom it's intended. Um, You want to have a discussion about who's financially transparent. (laughs) My god, the idea that we're losing this argument like the people that operate the Los Angeles Unified School District, or where I used to work in San Diego, that they are able to claim the mantle of we are fiscally transparent, the most Byzantine, inscrutable bureaucracies you can find anywhere, and charter schools are somehow like not transparent. we That's just bad advocacy. That's just doing it wrong. We've got to come up with proposals that highlight that we're doing things in ways that are far more transparent and responsible than the traditional system. And until we can get off are the defensive and start pushing for those things, yeah, I think our chances for changing the narrative are actually very low.
1: So again, it depends on the, the audience you're trying to sway. I would argue a lot of the things you talk about are not necessarily going to sway public opinion as in a parent's opinion because they're not sitting around thinking about transparency. Um, you know, They just want to send their children to a great school. But to the extent you're talking about swaying um, lawmaker opinion or Uh, certain groups that are opposed to us, then I think um, it's important to have these discussions and figure out exactly what will move them. And I'll just say, I mean, regardless of whether you're black or brown or Republican or Democrat, what really gets people engaged in this discussion is the notion of finding a school that best fits their child's needs. Uh, and I know that, that that's not enough to change the narrative, but I think whatever we do needs to really hone in on the fact that that is ultimately, um, you you want something that's gonna resonate with as many people as possible. And a school that fits your needs, your unique needs, uh, is definitely gonna have to be part of the narrative change, in my opinion.
0: So now I'll return to a topic. You and I have talked about this over and over again. I am a broken record on this. I said it for my entire seven years on the board of the National Alliance. You very patiently, you know. At that point, I was like the crazy uncle, you know, in the, yeah. in the living room, put him by the fireplace in his rocker. You know, now I'm the crazy uncle up in the attic, right? Yeah. But I'm still saying the same thing, which is that in order for us to win, we must genuinely be, and we must be understood to be a movement. And we need a few key organizations that are able to really be the stewards of that movement mess. Uh, and it's my my personal opinion that the connective tissues that, like you know, create authentic sharing of power and engagement and really bring people together are membership organizations. And that's why, you know, at at a variety of levels, at city levels, at state levels, and at at you know the national level, my recommendation is. That we should have these organizations very clearly be membership organizations, but thus far the National Alliance has not become that, um, and that has just been an ongoing discussion. And I just wonder, has your what's your latest thinking about that, Jed? Not important. You you've got a tick on this issue, and it really doesn't affect you know what our level of influence is, or no? Maybe things are evolving such that in terms of stitching together a long-term political and advocacy infrastructure, you know, having something with the National Alliance playing that key linchpin role does make sense at this moment. Mm -hmm. Just what what are your latest thoughts on that?
1: Um, So I have two quick answers. We are revising our strategic plan right now. And this is definitely a tactic under the larger plan that has come up for discussion. But uh, when it has come up, I'll just also be clear in that, you know, figuring out what is it that You're trying to do is really important because once you know what that is, then this is a strategy you may want to deploy in order to get to your goal. So, the notion of just creating an infrastructure by itself without having an end goal or an end state, uh, you know, is potentially, you know, uh, not a good idea. And I think, as much as be, you know, powerful and have tentacles everywhere so we can quickly move in a particular direction, the reason why it hasn't happened or these discussions haven't really taken root is because in every state you basically had associations and uh, local leaders handling what was happening at the state level. I mean, unlike some of the other causes that have a federal or legal right of action at the federal level, like the, you know, the right to life or choice, right? So Planned Parenthood and Emily's List or Susan B. Anthony's group. So these organizations have a federal presence and have connective tissue with the ground because they're aiming towards either protecting or getting rid of Roe v. Wade. The National Rifle, Rifle Association, the Second Amendment. So um, so our, ours has always been the charter schools grant program which is a funding stream that helps launch and replicate high performing schools. but. But, you know, charter policy is a phenomenon of, you know, state law and policy and the regulatory infrastructure. And after you pass that, what really will make a difference is what happens on the grant on the implementation front. there hasn't been a federal, you know, um, program or other than the generic programs that benefit public schools, there hasn't been that federal hook. With that said, though, after having done this for so many years, you and I have, started to notice patterns, as you've mentioned. And I really agree with you on this. One of the hallmarks of a strong charter school organization is having a C4 and a PAC, you know, not kind of resting on your laurels until something happens, making sure that you're always ready to defend, not just in the in service to expanding your footprint, but also to make sure you're safeguarding what you currently have in place. And so I, unfortunately, I think in many states after the law passed, Uh, And and mind you, the way the law passed in many states, I mean, you're from California, so you can tell the California story, but it really was one of those kumbaya moments that brought the left and the right together in service to helping low income students access better schools at a time when the right was pushing for vouchers and taking kids out of public schools and the left really wanting to come up with solutions that met the needs of the families whose kids were stuck in bad schools. You know it wasn't as if the grassroots you know the grassroots at the time were these families who wanted access to better schools basically and getting the left and the right to come together to pass these laws um wasn't as difficult um, Mm -hmm. you know now in some states that haven't passed laws yet so what i'm trying to say is you know the laws passed and for a good bit of time everyone loved charter schools and didn't necessarily have moments that required us to gather at the national level uh, to to talk about this or have one North Star. So again, certain states like Minnesota enacted charter school laws to liberate their teachers, to educate kids as they they best saw fit. Other places did it in order to give their parents more choices. States like Tennessee passed uh, their charter school law in order to Um, you know, reform their failing schools. And some of these recovery district models were created really to tackle the challenges students that schools were facing in those communities where the schools were chronically failing. And so anyway, it was fine for a very long time, but now that you have um, a movement that's, um, you know, basically primed to kill you, you have to make sure you have more forces uh, to defend it. And I, I think having... Uh, A fragmented system definitely gets in the way of getting the job done. Uh, But with all that said, I also think it's really important for us as an organization to know what is it that we're trying to do and then what are the pieces you need to piece together. Because the road that you're outlining here is not one, of course, that can be built overnight. And you could certainly create it very quickly and have people join. But at the end of the day, the thing that makes these relationships between the AFT and its members, or um, the Sierra Club and its members, all these other groups, the Humane Society and its members, the reason these relationships are sticky is because of a trade-off of what the national organization is doing for the state affiliate um, and whatnot. So it's making sure that the services you're offering are actually um, useful to the members is really important and it can't just be funding I mean you know fund everyone needs more money and certainly uh, raising funding is definitely at the core of our challenges in many places but in terms of expertise you need to be able to come up with a set of one-size-fits-all solutions that every member can tap into and use otherwise it just becomes a you know, you'd be better off just hiring some consultants to help you with certain tasks. We think, honestly, that there are three areas where, as a national organization, uh, we can have the greatest impact. Again, one of them is information sharing, which we've been doing over time, and a lot of our state leaders and state association partners benefit from. Just getting them together to talk to each other has been hugely beneficial. But I do think there are some platforms that can be created to better share data uh, to learn about the best practices when it comes to social media campaigns and whatnot. We don't need to do these things as one-offs on our own. All the polling that's been done, every community does its own poll and that's fine, but you can also aggregate a lot of these things. And when you talk about having one message, reiterating that message consistently, you definitely can centralize those. And some of it has already happened, but it's not trickling down as fast as possible. Partly because some of our association partners are short staffs and they have so many other things going on, but also because again the discipline um, hasn't been built, that muscle hasn't been trained. um, But I'm confident that we can build it. And sometimes you have to have a crisis in order to um, to get to get the you know the the, these types of ideas off the ground.
0: Right, right. Well, I see we're. Close to the end of our time together, I have a couple of questions, but I'm going to have to limit it to just one. Um, so, um, but uh, you know, again, just so much appreciate your time. Uh, let's see. Uh, this last question is grows out of what we've just been talking about, which is what is the way for us to best position ourselves? How do we run an agenda that resonates uh, best with the various audiences? And there is a group of communications firms and others that really recommend to us that, especially if we want to build support among Democrats, that we should not say anything at all that is negative about the traditional system. And uh, we should do everything that we can to avoid anything that seems us them. And we should present ourselves as just a tool in the broader toolbox of public education. And we should basically be working really hard to try and get more money into the system uh, one way or another versus, frankly, what what I, I think we should be trying to do, and I think several others do as well, which is that the, the, the moral case for charter schools, the occupying of the moral high ground, as Senator Mary Landrieu calls it, must be done by the charter school movement. And there's no way for us to do that without highlighting that there are these problems within the traditional public school system, and we are, Addressing them with as much courage and urgency as we can. Can you just in your in our remaining time just share some thoughts about how uh, where you are in the spectrum? And maybe it's a wrong way a wrong way to think about it, putting them at different ends. Maybe there is a way to thread a needle and do both at the same time. I don't know, but I feel like uh, we have a lot of of advocacy organizations that hear that information. Oh, don't say anything negative, and then that leads them to go into a shell where they don't make the moral argument and things actually get worse for us as we continue to get attacked by the other side.
1: Um, I think we touched on this a little bit, Jed. I think in my opinion, there's a way to do both depending on the audience that you're trying to address. In general, Um, every poll that I've seen, every study that's been done demonstrates that the general public doesn't like it when you pit one sector against another. And this has actually been even more pronounced after COVID hit. People don't like winners and losers in these instances. They want to see how you're helping everyone. And I do think that um, for better or for worse, the way our country is currently moving, uh, a lot of the discussions around equity, for instance, also uh, have Have made us think a little bit harder about what is it that we are doing in order to really seek an equitable education, not just for our kids, but also a system that serves all kids well. So, whenever again, depends on how you're going to have this discussion and who you're going to have the discussion with. Uh, But I am not a big fan of pitting one sector against another, but I do think you need to articulate what you're trying to do. And to the extent that that vision is one that's grander and better than what. What we have, people are going to start to follow you in that direction because no one likes this industrial st- style education that our kids have been attending for so long. I mean, there's some nostalgic feelings of, oh, this is how I was educated. But I also think a lot of people, especially now that COVID is hit, are realizing that, you know, the way we've been doing this doesn't make sense. You don't have to have everyone in a classroom staring at a screen or a teacher for a finite amount of time. If a child is progressing faster, they should be able to move faster through the program and whatnot. So mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say is I think we need to really be clearer on the North Star and painting that image of what we're trying to achieve rather than to co- compare ourselves with the status quo um, in order for people to get excited about the cause. Again. This is a, a longer discussion that I'm glad to have with you. And I actually think we should pull in some of our school leaders to, to make this discussion a little bit more exciting because there's so many examples of um, charters that are working very well with school districts. We just don't hear about it as much. Um, as you know, the fir- in the first few years of chartering, a lot of school districts that are authorizers, a good portion of charters, uh, of, of authorizers, as you know, are school districts. They're just not leveraging their power as authorizers. Right. Right, right. more. And so I just think there's something in that um, discussion that I don't want to lose by antagonizing people. But I also agree with you that if you're not creating a good versus evil story, if you're not telling the story in a compelling way, it's difficult to get the grassroots energized and mobilized, regardless of whether they are part of the charter school movement.
0: Well, it's a discussion that will continue. And uh, what is great to know is that We will have you as, you know, a key anchor often, you know, the convener of the discussion. Uh, Today, it was my honor to to convene it, Um, but just know, Nina, if there's anything I can be doing to help you or to help the Alliance or anything, you call on me anytime. And just know that I'm just very grateful to have had this hour with you and look forward to to, to those future conversations that you're talking about. Thank you so much. Bye-bye, Nina. Bye.